Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the It's a Feature, Not a Bug edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. I like to think I'm a feature, not a bug. Of the Daily Beast? I'm definitely a feature of the Daily Beast. Yeah, feature writer too. I occasionally bug people at the Daily Beast. I bug a lot of people. I bug bug a lot of people last week. I I think we need to break down the feature bug binary and, and understand that people can be Things can be both features and bugs at sure. the same time. Sure, exactly. You know, for instance, is Donald Trump a feature of our political landscape or a bug? A bit of both. A little bit of both. Yeah. He's a buggy feature. Or entirely just one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's not really any political news per se. We're doing to talk about the top of the show today. We've been doing that lately. But this is Super Tuesday. We're recording this on the morning of Super Tuesday. So we don't know what's so going to happen. So we don't know happen. what's going to happen. We Good may be... people of the future. <laughs> people of the future, when you listen to this, you may be living in a very different world. Yeah, you are living in a world in which in which Donald Trump is more clearly a bug <laughs> yes, than a future. Yes, the presumptive nominee yeah, of the, presumptive... the GOP. Wow. Not sure how he feels about David Duke. Yeah, we're not really sure. And, or Mussolini. Or Mussolini. Oh, I thought he was sort of, he was pro-Mussolini. Um, who, by the way, I don't think actually said the quote in question. That it's better to live one day as a lion than a hundred years as a sheep. Um, oh. I think that's an old Italian army slogan. Oh, really? That Mussolini may have repeated at one point. But oh, so it Mussolini may have properly it. Oh, it was wow. not properly attributed Breaking to Mussolini. News. Mussolini... Plagiarist. Yes. <laughs> Mussolini, yes. making things up. Um, wow. So Donald Trump can't even plagiarize Mussolini, right? Wow, gosh. That's definitely a bug, not mm-hmm. a feature. Because mm-hmm. he meant to. Okay, well. Well, we're going to, uh, you know, just like, slide right past the politics news, and we'll talk more about that next week. But fortunately, we have lots of other things to talk about. Uh, it was a big world in national security. Big, no, big week, big week. It's a big world, but it, it was is a big, a big week. world. Of it's national a big world of national security, well. but it was a big week in that world. Uh, so today on the show, a New York magistrate says the government can't force Apple to help the FBI extract information from an iPhone. Forty percent of analysts at the U.S. military's Central Command say the integrity of their reports is flawed. And Ben and the president of Estonia have a tweet, a tweet about the going dark problem. That's a fun that's pun. Good. You like good. that? I like that. I'm glad I, you enjoyed I, that. I, Not I bad. Think that's that's that was a feature. That's a feature. Not a bug That's of true. this show. That's true. That was custom built for this episode. Um, yeah, so, oh, I didn't even point out the fact that, you know, we're not here with Tamara Kaufman Wittes. I was just going to pretend to be her. <laughs> Tamara. Listeners of the of show the may have detected that that is Susan Hennessy talking. Hello. Susan, I feel like I don't even have to introduce you anymore, though. No, the readers should just know. Maybe yeah. you should just become part of the group. Yes. Yeah, I think you're just I a concur. fixture. I think you're just I'm part in. of rational Although security you f- now. You've foiled my plan. I feel like being Tammy Wittes for an hour would be like kind of a badass thing to me. <laughs> so I just said I once to- got on the phone uh, with a uh, young woman named Helen Klein, who happens to be the sister of Susan Hennessy. This oh. is true. Um, and the resemblance between their voices was so striking that um, I you know, had to keep reminding myself that I was not, in fact, talking to Susan. Uh, However, uh, I think you would not be able to pull off My parents also cannot tell the difference, and so they attempt to try and fake it long enough, but then eventually just have to ask, which one are you? Which one of my children is this? It is is really (laughs) eerie, particularly because they don't look anything alike. You're not twins or anything? No, no. Who's the older one? Thanks for rubbing it in. And that, that was a bug. But I think if if, <laughs> if if we had to do 50 minutes of Susan playing Tammy on Rational Security, I think she couldn't pull it off. I don't think you sound anything like Tammy. 
No, yeah. nor do I have any kind of the uh, the deep foreign policy credentials. But, <laughs> but here's here's what. But we're I'm gonna, happy to fake it. Here's what we're going to do. One day we are going to have Helen show up and be Susan oh, for yeah. an episode of Rational mm-hmm. Security, mm-hmm. and then we'll announce it at the end. Did you notice that this wasn't really Susan? <laughs> and what was the flaw in today's episode? <laughs> exactly. What was the bug? What was the bug? Find the bug. All right. Um, anyway, Susan is a feature, not yeah. a bug. Well, you're thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And I think your your wordplay is up first. Excellent. Uh, we finally have some some. Well, we've had a lot of news in the ongoing Apple saga, but a different strain of the news of this ongoing story. Tell us about it. Yes. Yeah, so this is breaking news from last night. Um, the a judge in the Eastern District of New York, Magistrate Judge James Ornstein, has now issued an order um, denying the government's motion to. Um, compel Apple to provide assistance under the All Writs Act to unlock a phone, um, a story you may be uh, at least a little bit familiar with. But Susan, is this the same phone as the FBI and Apple are arguing about? It's funny that you should ask, Benjamin. It's actually not the same phone. Um, so the operating system at issue in uh, in New York, uh, this is a case involving a methamphetamine dealer, uh, is an iOS 7 phone. So this essentially means that Apple voluntarily retains the capacity to unlock the phone. Um, and they've decided not to do so in this instance. Um, so the judge has essentially ruled um, that the All Writs Act is not uh, appropriate or applicable um, to compel this, compel this type of assistance. Um, we're still kind of digesting the opinion. Um, you know, kind of my, my first gut reaction was... Um, what possible set of fact patterns could sort of satisfy his tests of where the All Writs Act would be uh, applicable? Um, so I, I think that the legal reasoning is going to be, uh, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see kind of what the district court does with this. Uh, the Department of Justice has already announced their intention to appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unclear uh, what kind of impact this might have on the California case. Um, certainly, Orenstein framed his opinion um, in much broader terms. So while the burden uh, at issue is very, very different, um, he really focused instead on questions of um, sort of the statutory applicability, obviously sort of in an attempt to send a message to a colleague uh, in, in the uh, California case. Um, the most kind of interesting thing that, that it's in this opinion is this question of um, what we can assume the legislature is saying when it hasn't said anything at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sort of a lengthy discussion. There was a lengthy discussion, an oral argument, and a long discussion in the opinion about, um, you know, essentially that Congress has considered this issue, right? They've talked about this issue, but they haven't passed laws, right? And so sort of... Um, this issue being compelling... Companies the, the like issue Apple. of encryption, well, the, the issue of encryption, encryption is one assistant, piece of kind it, of the yes. general going dark issue, yeah. um, and that they haven't passed a law. And so while while he cites the case precedent that essentially says um, you can't assume anything based on congressional lack of action, because mm-hmm. of course two equal conclusions, you know, there's two equally tenable conclusions, right? The conclusion that Congress um, desperately wants to pass legislation that you know bans all encryption, right? Kind of the most extreme thing possible. That's the will, but you know they haven't uh, they haven't gotten around to it or they don't think there's a the political calculation isn't there or in the affirmative they don't think apple should have to do this provide this assistance at all right that there's sort of there's nothing um you can't draw any conclusions about that um ornstein makes that statement and then says but here we can draw conclusions then sort of vaguely cites to some hearings um well he also i mean he kind of one thing that struck me on that on that point is he goes back to i don't think he actually did a particularly good job of detailing it but He's referring to, in the mid-90s, the fight over the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, or CALEA. And on this, I happen to know something about this because I've written a lot about that history. And Congress did consider whether or not to apply these uh, um, standards that are applied to telecom companies of you have to build your equipment in such a way that it can be tapped to information service providers and decided not to. They affirmatively said no which I thought was really interesting. I mean, can you go back to the congressional history? I mean, he's right on the history of that. But as a matter of law and of precedent, that was that struck me as well, I, mean, I just I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, as I often say. Right, so look, there, he's right about it, but I didn't know you could use that as a justification for saying, well, they clearly meant to exempt Apple. Right. So, so certainly, what Congress has said in the past is relevant here. Um, I think the difference is Kalia applies to a different type of assistance, right? Intercepting communications. That's not what what is that issue here. Um, 
And two, to the extent that Kalia does speak to this issue, um, it's not sort of, uh, it's not clear that, that anything that they sort of considered back in the 90s are relevant to the kinds of specific assistance that's being requested here. Um, in fact, sort of the weight of, uh, of precedent, uh, at least 70 other cases, uh, would suggest that, that this is, right, that, that sort of the common understanding is that they didn't intend to sort of preempt this space. I think normally I have a, uh, aversion to uh, uh, ad hominem attacks on judges uh, when they issue opinions. Uh, uh, but I, I do think a word about Magistrate Judge James Orenstein uh, is uh, appropriate here. So this is one of the magistrates in New York that uh, was responsible for the, the so-called revolt of the magistrates a few mm -hmm. years ago in which... Uh, to make a very long story very short, a group of magistrates really started balking at a, at a category of wiretap orders that the government was requesting. And it got a lot of news and a lot of attention for a while, and they got reversed very decisively at the district court and circuit court levels. And, um, and so I do think it is, uh, without you know, this is not a legal argument. Uh, it is worth considering the source here and considering the, uh, um, the, the track record of this particular magistrate in announcing that the government has overreached, issuing flamboyant opinions that get a lot of press attention and, uh, the subsequent history of those uh, opinions uh, uh, and their shelf life is not especially uh, promising uh, or long. And, and to that point, I mean, one of the things I would use the word flamboyant. I mean, I mean, I read a lot of opinions from judges, but they're usually appeals court opinions. And this, he's sweeping, and I mean, he goes back to what the founders intended. And I mean, it reads like what you would imagine being handed down from an appeals court, not a magistrate judge on right, the warrant. If not the Supreme Court itself. Right. right. So, I mean, I guess that's the, it, it, I don't know this. Is, is, was that tone unusual for? It is highly It's unusual. highly unusual. The other thing that's highly unusual in a court order that's going to be that sleeping is to not cite a single case precedent on point, right? I see. Um, if there's a big tell, um, a lack of being able to cite to, um, to persuasive, much less binding uh, precedent. It, it's a it's a relatively big one. Um, look, I'm going to you know sort of um, there was a lot of triumph from sort of one uh, particular ideological perspective on Twitter and the internet's last uh, night. I'm going to save sort of my um, either outrage or or celebration for a district court. Um, you know, I, I do not think that the legal arguments uh, regarding the order, particularly the questions of sort of where the legislature has and has not spoken, um, I, I really do not find them persuasive at all. Okay. Can I can I say Susan is being very polite here? Uh, let me give uh, as I often am, and now here's Benjamin Whittis. Yes, this is the translation into the language rude um, for all the Twitterati who are celebrating today. Here's my message. Enjoy it while it lasts. Uh, I don't know what the final outcome uh, at the district court level or at the Second Circuit level or at the Supreme Court level is going to look like, and I don't know what it's going to look like in the Central District of California where the Apple case is being litigated and the San Bernardino case is being litigated or at the Ninth Circuit level. But I can promise you the outcome will not look like the magistrate judge uh, decision yesterday. Uh, even if Apple wins, it will not win on the grounds that, that magistrate judge that I would agree with. Wrote, wrote. So, you know, to, to everybody who's celebrating, uh, have fun, um, you know, but uh, remember that uh, this is one magistrate judge, and it's a magistrate judge with a history of flamboyant opinions that don't last long. And can I ask this as a, as a last question to kind of wrap this up? He's been sitting on this for, I mean, the sitting on this that is issuing, he's, he has not issued an opinion for some time. Right, so it's been so about... So why was it now? I mean, it, the, the coincidence with the, the fight in California and the rest of it feels Surely not... Surely right, so you're not <laughs> suggesting, Shane, that 
that the flamboyant language of the magistrate judge uh, was injected into an ongoing political argument. Not of the third branch. Uh, yeah, surely the third branch would never behave that way. And I'm appalled that you would suggest Oh, I'm so surely look, suggesting in it. It's what I would do defense. if I were him. I mean, come on. In Who his, else is going to read your opinion? It's the perfect time to read your opinion defense. read. Um, yes, well, he has sort of um, been spinning know. his wheels uh, essentially for the past two months. Uh, final briefs, I think, were last uh, filed back and in as December. And did he say kind of like waiting to see how things play out yeah, in California? So he asked, did allude to that, so right? I, I don't think that he said waiting to see how things played out in California. He asked um, he asked for the government and Apple to explain why the, why the issue was Sorry, removed. you're right, you're right. Apple did back. file yeah. a letter last week um, uh, sort of asking him for the opinion, so... Uh, you know, he's not kind of issuing his order out of nowhere. But he was taking his that time. That said, uh, he was taking his time and um, and has now sort of um, been in quite a hurry and, and was able to um, to beat the deadline for amicus filings in the California case by a number of days. Um, so uh, it will remain to be seen whether or not his colleague in the Central District um, views this as a hostile or friendly act. Um, you know, she might think that it's uh, it's useful to have sort of outstanding cases put to rest so that she can, um, you know, issue her order based on sort of the, the a more uh, settled kind of issue. Uh, I think it's equally possible that she'll view this as sort of um, an attempt to usurp or sort of or force her hand on something. Um, you know, she's not, uh, the magistrate judge in California is not known to be one to... Um, uh, pull punches or suffer fools l sort of legal reasoning very, very, uh, quietly. And so, uh, you know, it'll certainly be interesting to see, uh, one, what her order looks like, and two, whether or not she elects to sort of incorporate yeah. this reasoning at all. So, like, we don't know whether, like, in their judge's private Facebook page, whether they're on, if she's like emoji eye roll or emoji hand clap. Exactly. But definitely one of those two things are happening. One of those two. Okay. Uh, we shall see. More to come, obviously. Um, okay, uh, I'll go into my wordplay this week, which is, uh, I won't say it's testimony. It's, if the chairman of the committee gives, it's a statement. A statement yes. last week. That's what they call it. From the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, uh, who, uh, not one to really come out and, uh, 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 certainly not to talk to reporters, at least on the record very much. Uh, we did a lot of talking last week about the fact that according to a survey, uh, by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence uh, conducted last fall and into the winter of 2015, 40%, that's 4-0, <clears throat> of analysts at the U.S. Military Central Command said that the integrity of their reports was flawed and reported that they believe that political influence had been brought to bear. Why is this important? Well, obviously there's been a story ongoing about this, uh, allegations by analysts at Central Command that their higher-ups, and specifically the two people in charge of what's called the J-2, or the intelligence unit down there at Central Command, have been skewing reports about ISIS, have been changing conclusions that the analysts think um, are meant to put a more positive spin on how the U.S. military campaign against ISIS is going. So we at the Daily Beast actually had reported on this survey, um, but then there were numbers sort of contained deeper down in that survey which notably were not, apparently, according to Nunes anyway, directly given to Congress. He had to go ask for more information <laughs> about this from the DNI. <clears throat> and that's when <clears throat> it was revealed, excuse me, that 40% um, of these analysts said that there was a problem with the integrity. I mean, so we've talked about this story on the, on the podcast before, and, I mean, I always ask the question, you know, why does this matter? Why is it significant? When 40% of analysts in a major military combatant command say that, they think that politics is being brought to bear on their reports or the analysis is flawed, that that's pretty striking and pretty shocking it's to me. It's a big, big problem. It's, it's a, a big, big problem. problem. Can I make like a sort of startling claim about yeah, what I, to blame yes, this on? I wish you would. I would like to blame this on FOIA. Um, look, I understand that um, the absolute critical importance of transparency mechanisms um, you know, I, I'm certainly not um, not advocating for kind of um, uh, less accountability. That said, um, the notion that intelligence reports are ultimately going to be subject to disclosure, either through the FOIA process or courtesy of, you know, Mr. Snowden or others, um, I, I think that that really does um, 
undercut the ability of the intelligence community to be honest brokers for the president. Um, it's incredibly important that sort of the um, the senior political leaders of the United States get the facts and they get the facts straight. Um, and so I do think that these um, you know sort of mechanisms that are aimed at transparency, aimed at accountability, can actually have sort of perverse effects in terms of what people are willing to write down. What? Oh, calling. hang on, my phone is ringing. Uh, give me just a sec. Hello. Hi, Helen. Hi, Helen. Oh, is this Helen Klein? Yes, this is she. All right. So, uh, Helen, we are, you have called That's instead of Helen. perfectly opportune moment. We are actually recording rational security right now. And I have made a claim on rational security that while Susan, uh, your sister, cannot plausibly uh, uh, pass herself off as Tammy, uh, for 45 minutes, you might be able plausibly to pass your voice off as Susan's for 45 minutes. So here's, uh, here's what I would be very helpful to our listenership if you could do. Um, do, uh, your best Susan, uh, uh, saying anything you like, and then Susan will repeat it, and we'll see if readers, uh, listeners can tell the difference. Okay. Um, um, but keep your voice up. Okay. Say, uh, the National Security Agency is staffed by American patriots. The National Security Agency is staffed by American patriots. Wow. There, there we you go. go. So, uh, so uh, Helen, we are going to, uh, sometime in the next uh, several weeks, when you happen to be in D.C., we're going to have you uh, play Susan on rational security and see if people can spot the fake. Perfect. It's a study app. Helen, say I blame the Freedom of Information Act. I blame the Freedom of Information Act. Yeah. That totally sounds like Susan. Yeah. yeah there then you that's go. something I would she say just too, because I do she blame the it. Freedom of Information Act. That's that's eerie. Yeah. You guys could cause a lot of trouble. Yeah. There you go. All right. <laughs> Thanks for calling in, Helen. Yeah. No All right. Bye. Love you. Talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> um, that's that's going to mess us up now. Yeah. Yeah. Your well, sister's going to be calling in, <clears throat> and she's going to be, like, saying things about magistrates, and, yeah. and I'm going to be, like, taking it seriously because, like, oh, that sounds like oh, Susan. Oh, yes. Um, meanwhile, get, what does she know? You should put her on these public radio interviews to fill in for you. I, and and so like I might. Your, I could your, use an your, extra your, body. Your audio doppelganger. Um, she has been like, writing, I just can't take it anymore. Just to do a little plug, she has been writing excellent stuff for Lawfare. Um, nepotism in action. She's one of Lawfare's cubs. Excellent she analysis also of Nishiri. Um, she is a 2L at Harvard Law School. The family what, you business. Mean your alma mater? Uh, yes, although she is... Um, <laughs> managed to accomplish a few things that I have to admit I did not during my tenure. Really? Um, she's on law review. <gasps> Ugh, I know. Gosh, I'm rolling my eyes. Insufferable. Don't you hate your siblings? Yes. Oh, there's oh. nothing worse than your siblings doing like similar, like the same thing you did, but better. Oh, there's a great Jonathan Swift line about that. I'll 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 look it up as we talk. All right, all right. I wouldn't um, know anything about this. My brother's not very smart. Very <laughs> no, um, there's not. a there's a third one too. A third really? Klein sister out Wait, there. Wait, does she want to be a lawyer too? She is a lawyer. You what? Know? And here's the thing, rational security listeners. I'm going to let you in on a Klein family secret. She is privacy counsel for Facebook. You shit. Uh, <laughs> uh, hands of God. This is seriously um, a family business. We need a family it. business. We're need although we come down this. on on a lot of different sides, and so um, our Thanksgiving conversations are um, are robust debates uh, on the oh. uh, the relative merits of Silicon Valley and uh, Washington D.C. Wow, I hope you had good wine at least. Mm -hmm. Jonathan mm -hmm. Swift writes: What poet would not grieve to see his brethren write as well as he? But rather than they should excel, he wish his rivals all in hell. Oh yeah, God. that captures it. That sibling rivalry right there. If you guys had been twins, you probably would have like eaten her in the womb. Uh, anyway, the various accomplishments of my sisters aside, 
Let's get back to FOIA. Let's get back to FOIA. I'm, still, I'm not following this argument of why okay, because, FOIA because I is do think Look, I don't want to say it's sort of FOIA, like the technicality of FOIA. I think it's that it's, um, it's this overarching understanding that intelligence um, reports are going to come out in other contexts that are not direct communications within the executive branch. Um, and then there, and there's going to be sort of political accountability, right? Um, and that there then becomes an incentive to ensure that the written record um, sort of matches up with what is happening politically at the time. This is the reason why executive privilege, privilege exists, right? An understanding that the executive needs uh, honest brokers, the ability to have a frank and candid relationship um, with his uh, support staff, essentially, which is what all of his lawyers, all of his analysts are, right, are essentially support staff. And um, so I, I do think it's sort of, it's, Whenever we come up against really astounding numbers, like 40% doubting the integrity of the intelligence, I mean, this is a big deal. Yeah. Um, I do think that it's worth it sort of to take a step back and say, okay, what is happening on sort of a systematic level um, that, that all of these people are being sort of incented to, uh, to manipulate their intelligence? You know, certainly it, um, it must be part of the culture. But why is FOIA responsible for that? I don't get it. Like, what, what role does FOIA play? Because you would think that if, like, these people believed that FOIA was going to come along, someone was going to come along and FOIA conversations between senior intelligence officials and the president, which, by the way, they would never get. Right. Um, then they would be have an incentive not to skew things and to be just do exactly what the analyst, report exactly what the analyst said. I think you have a lot of faith in uh you know, sort of the, first of all, Shane Harris coming out on behalf of the press and FOIA. Uh, no, <laughs> I, like, I, I, think, I think you have a lot of faith and, in people, and, and right? And Susan Hennessy, NSA lawyer, denouncing <laughs> FOIA as the root cause of all Look, evils. I'm using, I'm, I'm cartooning FOIA as, um, as, right, sort of the, um, the increased push towards transparency, mm -hmm. uh, towards um, transparency mechanisms that are not entirely discretionary. Those come a lot of different ways. One mechanism is obviously FOIA. Another is members of Congress putting things sort of in the public sphere that were not um, originally constructed for the public sphere. Um, I, I think you're being sort of too optimistic about human nature, right? You're assuming, well, then, like, uh, if every if all things eventually come to light, this incents people yeah. to be very, very rigorous about sort of the facts on the ground. Uh, I don't and know, right? Like, One of my favorite things, we should, we should check whether this is also true of Helen Klein, is the way Susan uh, uses the verb incent, which I, I uh, think is a coinage of her own. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. uh, and I, 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 I've noticed it over time that every time I would use the verb incentivize. I know, I, um, I know that, that this is a not, uh, that I'm stretching the grammatical usage. I think it's, I I think it's great. It. I, I, like think, it. I think we should. Uh, I like it better than incentivize. I, I think maybe I, yes. maybe we should all start using it as. as yes. And, and I'm putting it out there. Um, I'm, I don't, there are certain, I don't like to like, there's, I don't know, I'm not going to do it, but I think that mm -hmm. you can do it if you thank want. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and I intend to continue. Yeah. Just like I'm not going to use impact as a verb. Oh, no, impact should never be used. As Unless we're talking about a meteor or constipation. <laughs> um, but I, I just think that, I'm like, look, we should just say on, the, on this CENTCOM uh, controversy, you know, we have not yet heard from the two individuals who are the primary subject of the complaints of these analysts. And we don't know, when we haven't heard their side of the story, it's fair to say that the Inspector General of the DOD is investigating this, so obviously they think that there's something there. What I actually worry about, though, the FOIA part of this, is that, um, you know, you have this, you know, clearly this controversy, I dare say even scandal that's brewing down there, um, and it has been extraordinarily difficult to get any real read on it. I mean, we've been reporting on it, the New York Times has been reporting on it, it's been a real challenge. And I think that one of the things that really uh, incensed it's not incentive. Incensed, uh, Chairman Nunes was that he didn't think that the DNI was being straight with him. Uh, you know, he knew that there was this survey that had been conducted. Uh, it did not contain, however, the details that he was looking for. And then, after our story in the Daily Beast came out, he went back to the DNI and said, "You know, damn it, give me more information." So, you know, I, from his point of view, it's not like the DNI has been particularly transparent with the oversight committee in Congress. Right, which is a whole separate uh, yeah. separate concern. So. All right, Ben, you and the president of Estonia had some had some tweet love. 
We did. This uh, week. So, uh, Tomas Ilvis, who is the president of... Tomas. Uh, I, th- I think that's how it's pronounced. Tomas? Uh, maybe Tomas. It's Tomas? spelled T-O-O-M-A-S. Tomas. Um, so is there some kind of fancy accent? It means too much. Mm-hmm. Ilvis is a... Uh, is <laughs> no, a unusual head of state. He seems to run his own Twitter account. Um, and he's very active on Twitter. Can I just say that sounds incredibly dangerous, but go ahead. Um, he's also, a, a, you know, a genuine cybersecurity expert. Uh, he's, you know, got a tech background. Um, and he is the godfather um, of this Estonian digital residency program that I have been writing about on Lawfare. Um, I recently got my Estonian e-residency card, and I, you know, refer uh, rational security readers who are interested in that subject to this series that I've been working on. Does not mean you denounced your U.S. citizenship. His right? U.S. He did have to denounce his U.S. Uh, digital residency citizenship. Uh, no, Estonia, to be fair, just as Switzerland does not ask you to renounce other bank accounts in order to have a bank account in Switzerland, Estonia does not require that you renounce anything to become an e-resident of Estonia. It simply uh, requires that you give fingerprints and a copy of your um, your passport uh, to, uh, and you fill out an application, much as the U.S. requires to visit the United States that yeah. you present, or a to passport. get like that special TSA. <laughs> Port of entry, thing, right? No, but even but even if, if you're a, if you're a foreigner coming into the United States, you know, uh, U.S. visit requires that you uh, have pass, you know, have fingerprints taken. Estonia uh, right. will issue you an e-residency card based on the same thing. Uh, so I've written a fair bit about the e-residency card. I'm going to be writing a bit more. But one of the things that the e-residency card promises is that uh, it allows you to send encrypted communications between yourself and any other e-resident, including encrypted signed communications. It allows uh, a digital signature that the Estonian government will stand behind as having come from you. So it's a very interesting project in digital identity and cybersecurity. Uh, and one of the things that it made me think as I was working on uh, this uh, Estonia project in the midst of the Apple and going dark question is, what if the San Bernardino killers had, instead of having an Apple or phone, in addition, or in addition to having an Apple phone, been e-residents? And they'd found, the FBI had found on them a uh, you know, a, an, a, an Estonian digital residency <laughs> card and wondered as they wonder with their phones what communications uh, they may be having that are encrypted and invisible to them. Would, the, would they be dark in that context too, just as they are with Apple? So uh, I did what any normal person would do in 2016 uh, with this question, which is I tweeted it at the president of Estonia. As one does. As one does. To heads of state. And sure. uh, he being I, one of the coolest and certainly most electronically available <laughs> heads of state in the world, he answered. Um, but does he play the saxophone? I, I doubt it. I don't think so. He wears a bow tie, actually, which is inconsistent with coolness. So I, you know, I give both sides. You decide. Um, he. Uh, so I, I tweeted at him. Question for uh, at Ilvis Tomas. As U.S. struggles with FBI v. Apple, what capacity does Estonia have to decrypt material sent with a residency card? Um, and then in a subsequent tweet, I said i.e. if the San Bernardino case involved e-residency communications, not Apple, would Estonia have the capacity to help, or would the FBI be dark? And he responded this morning, we couldn't do a thing. Uh, Mm. If the San Bernardino case involved e-resident... I'm sorry. um, uh, And in response to my question, what capacity does Estonia have to decrypt material, he said, none. The entire system is based on trust. With backdoors, there is no trust. Wow. Um, so I, I think this is actually a really interesting thing. And I was thinking about, well, does this mean that the FBI would have the same problem with e-residency that it has with Apple? So I think the an- and here's the thing. I think the answer to that question is no. 
And I, I threw this out this morning on Lawfare to gather people's uh, reactions as string. But here's what I think the answer is. That to decrypt a, 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 a material encrypted with an e-residency card, you need two things. You need the card and you need the person's PIN. So if they had you know, killed the San Bernardino killers and, they, and recovered their card, they would merely need to decrypt one four-digit PIN or one five-digit PIN, depending on precisely what they wanted to do mm. with the card. And that is subject to a brute force attack. And presumably they could use any number of devices to do that, right? It wouldn't be limited by the, by the security controls on a given device. You could just go to a different device. I, I believe that's right. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, and so I think the answer is uh, that the Estonian card um, may provide very, very high security, very good encryption, but also that Estonia can't get in back of, can't, can't backdoor, but also wouldn't present the same degree of going dark problem that the Apple phone hmm. presents. And so I've sort of tossed it out there on Lawfare as, hey, is this a possible model of a, of a solution, something that's really strong encryption with no backdoors and yet wouldn't present a going dark problem? Or is the reaction of the ACLU types to this going to be, actually, that means it's not strong in well, the way that's that That's obviously my strong. question. I mean, though, if, if, it's, if it's just a four or five-digit pin that has to be guessed and it's a, just a brute force attack, I mean, not to say that like your average person has you know quantum computers available to them, but a four-digit pin. I mean, couldn't you buy technology that could do a brute force guess on a four-digit pin? I, th I think it depends on the underlying uh, features of the device in question. Um, also, you know, right, that might be the case for a four-digit pin. Uh, the argument might be to then move to a six-digit pin or an eight-digit pin. Well, well right? but, but 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 hang on, <laughs> it's not just a pin, right? It's a pin and the card. You need the card. Um, and if you're still alive and you lose your card, you report the card missing and it's canceled right away, and then the thing can't be decrypted. Uh -huh. So, so it has this, um, you know, it has a human element of security. You need to keep possession of your card. Some aspect of it is brute. It could be can be addressed with brute force, but only if that human element of security is gone. And by the way. The card, um, the uh, you know, the the card can be canceled at any time, and thereby uh, removing the the brute force attack as a way of. Um, so I I think there are situations if the last thing that the San Bernardino killer did before dying is to you know cancel their their e-residency card, uh, you might have a, a dark problem. Um, and similarly, if you steal somebody's e-resident card and they don't know it's gone, you could imagine uh, a, uh, a brute force attack being very effective and very dangerous. Um, but I think there's, there, there may be some interesting, uh, um, there may be some interesting models here. And look, so far I have not heard either that Estonians have had security problems from using these cards, including to protect their medical records. Yeah. Um, and neither have I heard problems that Estonian law enforcement has gone dark as a result of these cards. And so, you know, maybe there's some, uh, there's some real uh, value in the point that Ilvis is making that um, combined with some of the strategies that the Bureau is, is using. Estonia, it's going to save us. I mean, look, I, I think it's it's certainly um, sort of an interesting model. It, it's hard to under, it's hard to sort of um, see how scalable it really is, right? Estonia right. being a significantly smaller um, population. I, I do think that one thing that the Estonian model sort of um, it raises in terms of um, you know encryption as a problem to be solved uh, is sort of this notion of um, the need for platform coherence essentially right so um, encryption only works if the other people are also sort of using the same system right so I could be using signal and you could be using telegram and it doesn't matter how secure like we can't speak to one another 
and so whenever you have a system where everybody sort of agrees and opts into sort of a single, um, you know, a single platform, you know, then it's possible uh, to sort of to develop some strategies based on kind of that that particular the particular sort of mechanisms um, surrounding that platform. It allows um, it allows law enforcement to sort of. Uh, uh, understand exactly what the scope of the problem is. Uh, it also allows for really um, relatively informed risk analysis, right? So this is not to say that the, that the Estonians don't have to incorporate some degree of risk, or maybe potentially, a, you know, a great deal of risk. Somebody might come back and say, no, 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 all these communications are in fact dark to law enforcement. Um, but it sort of it, it bounds the conversation in such a way where everyone sort of gets what they're talking about. They sort of get. Um, what the lay of the land is in terms of um, what technical mechanisms might be required in terms of a backdoor or lawful hacking or, or sort of these other things. <laughs> and that allows for a, a really informed, tethered, concrete, and, uh, and, um, and sort of specific conversation. I think what's happening in the United States is because there are all these different systems, right? There's iMessage, there's iPhone, there's Google, um, you know, there's, there's sort of a million different models. It, it's really difficult to have sort of a single conversation about how to solve the problem. Um, you know, that makes it very difficult to understand what it might look like moving forward. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Estonia. Uh, thank you, President Ilvis. We yeah. should find out how to say thank you in Estonian. Estonian uh, is a language in which I can safely say that I know no words. Mm -hmm. As best as I know, it is... <coughs> Excuse me. It's not that. As best as I know, it is so closely related top. only to Finnish. All right. It's um, Aita. Aita. Or Aita. Okay. One of those two. Sure. A-I-T-A-H with an umlaut on the A. Excellent. Eta. Thanks, Google. Um, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I, I can go first if you have You go first. Okay. Yeah. So um, about, geez, two and a half years ago, I want to say. This is a while ago. Uh, I filed a FOIA request. This is when I was at my previous publication, Foreign Policy Magazine. A FOIA request, corrupting the entire yeah. integrity of yeah. U.S. intelligence. Yeah, system. yeah, this FOIA go request on. that took two and a half freaking <laughs> years for CBP, Customs and Border <laughs> Protection, to respond to. Um, at the time, there was, and I guess there still is, a lot of questions about uh, Edward Snowden and why he had gone to China and why he went to Russia. Can I did a story about how he traveled to India? So I thought, you know, I'm just going to FOIA um, all of the travel records uh, for, for Edward Snowden. That is, entry and exit information for Edward Snowden at U.S. ports of entry um, and any information about had he been detained, anything about, you know, in the travel records. Because, you know, settle it, fine. People were making all these insinuations about, you know, maybe he was working for a foreign government. Fine, give me his travel records. Let's see where he went. Um, and I just today, literally as we were getting ready to go on the air with this, received a response from Customs and Border Protection denying my request. Drum on roll, what basis? Please. Well, two bases. One, <clears throat> um, Edward Snowden did not give permissions for these records to be released, which is understandable. I'm a third sure, party Sure, I presume he might not. And he might not want to. But although I think you should request, a, you should you, ask. You should ask Snowden, Edward Snowden. Can I have your travel records? We're getting ahead of ourselves okay. here. Okay. Um, but that's a very good idea. Yeah, it is. Uh, <clears throat> so then there was, of course, the question of, well, is he a public figure? And the fact that he's a public figure and in the news mm -hmm. and the subject of all of this controversy, mm -hmm. does that sort of fugitive you know, from justice, a great many things. Listen, public figure mm -hmm. is all I'm going to say right now. Um, uh, does that, you know, sort of, you know, exempt him from or, or offer him fewer privacy rights? And here's what the CBP says in denying my request for records. While the office will allow that Mr. Snowden should could be considered a public figure and thus enjoy less privacy rights than other subjects or requesters, the nature of the events which led to Mr. Snowden becoming a public figure are unrelated to his travel history, any inspections he may have had at ports of entry, etc. Release of these records, should they exist, would not enhance the public knowledge of the events which made him a public figure, as such, we are asserting Mr. Snowden's privacy rights for this request and must deny the request in full. Can I just say that, that there are numerous <laughs> false statements in that letter? And, the, and their response? Yeah. I Where mean, would you begin? Well, I would begin with the idea that his travel history is unrelated to how he became a, far, a, a, a public figure. And in fact, well, up to the point he'd been a public figure, it might have been unrelated. We don't know. Well, wait a minute. Let's let's yeah, let's I mean, totally it's unrelated. Re right? Let's review the bidding. This is somebody who left the United States, presumably through a port of entry, 
to go to Hong Kong. Uh, right. He wasn't technically a, fig a public figure until a few days later. Well, right. But you're requesting uh, it is it is. But the actions. The actions are clearly related to how he became a public figure. Moreover, uh, I believe <laughs> I read a story somewhere about his having left the United States to go to India to take a course on ethical hacking. Uh, did I take, read that in the Daily Beast? You may have read it in Foreign Policy. In Foreign Policy, yeah. yes, by one Shane Harris. Yeah. Um, that would, of course, might be relevant to his career as a public figure. And um, Might be. Emphasize might. Well, certainly it is not unrelated. Well, hence was the nature of my request, right? right. Yes. You know? So I, th I think the premise of the letter is factually untrue. Just saying. Yeah, but isn't you it? should FOIA the legal opinion about why they couldn't. <laughs> well, I am. It. I, I, by the way, I do have a right to to appeal this. <laughs> so you're saying I should appeal this on the grounds that his <coughs> travel history is absolutely related to is centrally relevant. Relevant. Yes, I just think it's. I think it's very notable that the government, on behalf of Edward Snowden, is asserting his privacy rights. Yes, there there is. I, the irony runs deep. I mean, just saying. There, there is something, something about that. And I think Edward Snowden's heart would be warmed by the idea yeah. that the government well, is protecting his privacy. You know, okay, and, and I will say, him. like, Come I mean, on. I mean, even though I would like to see the travel records, and I do think he's a public figure, I have, so there's a part of my heart that's warmed too to know that like journalists can't just FOIA your goddamn travel <laughs> records. <laughs> and he doesn't. And to be clear, by the way, it was not for his travel records; it was entry and exit and these kinds of things. So I'm not asking for domestic or anything like that. Um, but yeah, since the question was being raised in Congress by many people at the time, my attitude was fine. Let's check the records and see what they say. But nope, can't. Well, I will go on to my object lesson, mm -hmm, um, which is this is from, Susan, not her sister. From the uh, Susan Hennessy here, uh, from the um, satirical site Clickhole, um, producer of a great many hilarious things, uh, and this is a speech written for President Nixon to deliver if the astronauts didn't make it to the moon. Um, I'll let you read the entire letter for yourself. It's really very funny. There um, was a real speech. By there the way. was there was a real speech. By that, um, Right. That if the uh, if the Apollo 11 mission had um, resulted ended tragically, uh, you know there was a prepared comments. Um, you know so. You know, thank you to the, the brave men of that mission uh, who did return safely. Anyway, so this this is a, um, a very funny uh, and, and probably in kind of poor taste letter. Oh, the, or, the, uh, absolutely, speech. and the best are. But one part that, that I think really stands out um, is Nixon's attempt to eulogize um, Buzz Aldrin. He says, quote, he was brave and noisy. He would often boast that when he got to the moon, he would jam a Japanese flag into the soil just to make NASA shriek and holler. <laughs> I often told him, Buzz, do not cram a flag of Japan into the soil of the moon. Do the American flag instead. And Buzz would say, with all due respect, Mr. President, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> now, the reason why I think this is incredibly funny is because it, it, it ties in nicely to one of what I think is the funniest ideas Benjamin Wittes has ever had. Which is uh, the uh, that we should start a news magazine dedicated to running honest obituaries oh, about people. Investigative obituary investigative, magazine. Right. Oh I'll let God. Ben explain the theory of the investigative obituary magazine. Well, to, to be fair, uh, investigative obituary magazine was not my idea. <laughs> it was the idea of one Tom Watson, who was uh, my editor at Legal Times back in the day. <laughs> and Tom had this pathological hatred of fawning obituaries of people who were actually awful, or um, obituaries that didn't mention the scope of somebody's dastardly deeds. And so he would read obituaries uh, and just seethe in rage, and finally came up with this idea of in the investigative obituary magazine, the slogan of which was not letting the dead rest in peace. <laughs> and we were going to go out there and tell the truth about the dead. Um, and uh, we would, you know, sometimes get together and read obits and, you know, hey, they left this out. Oh, investigative God. obituary would never do that. Uh, and it was, a, it was an idea that we'd sort of knocked around a little bit. 
I, it never got beyond the joke stage, but I, I stand by it. I think, um, I, I think most people think about your liberal friends uh, who uh, and their reaction to Justice Scalia's death. Um, I think there are a lot of people who, when they die, um, we all, whoever, whatever your politics, whatever your sensibility, there are a lot of people who, when they read the obituaries, say, wait a minute, that's not the guy I knew, and want to say, you know, want something that's going to be a little bit more hard-hitting toward the dead, and that's investigative obituary well, magazine. Well, if I get hit by a bus this afternoon, I expect you both to tell the truth about I, who I was. I've got, I I've got a tagline. All its ugly details. I've got a tagline for your magazine. The truth can't wait until the body is cold. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Anyway. Uh, all right, Ben, what's your object? Um, my object lesson is my new Surface tablet, and I have a little parable about it. I bought a Surface tablet on the merits because uh, it was the right tablet for me, and it had nothing to do with Apple's uh, current flack with the FBI. And I was about to tweet a picture of it last week uh, with the joking notice that you know I was boycotting Apple and bought a Surface instead. Um, when all of a sudden Donald Trump uh, announced that he was thinking of boycotting Apple because of its position, um, and I felt immediately chastened and um, and uh, um, did not um, uh, tweet this, and I don't want to be on the same side as Donald Trump about anything. But you love your surface. But I like my surface. Yeah. Okay, well that brings us to the edge of the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our past shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. The show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Buzz Aldrin and the Dead Japanese Astronauts. There's <laughs> a band that I would go see. Uh, all right, on behalf of my friends Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. 